three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 384. Welcome in. Uh, let's not waste any time. Let's jump in. NFL Week 2 is here. On Thursday Night Football, the Washington football team beat the New York Giants 30-29. to And, uh, oh, dude, I wake up this morning, and I honestly, I feel, I feel bad for Giants fans. I think those people are finally starting to wake up to the realization of what their season is going to look like. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope the Giants have a great, like, I think people don't realize I don't ever root against anybody or any team. I'm not that kind of person. I don't believe based on what I've seen, you know, leading up to the year. And then in the first two games, this is not going to be a good year for the New York Giants. It's going to be an ugly, long, grueling year for the Giants. And, and I feel bad for Giants fans. And I hope I'm wrong, but I feel bad for you guys who are waking up today and realize, oh no, what, what have we got ourselves into this year? Uh, there's a lot to be said. Number one, the Giants should have won this game. Like, I don't know how you don't walk away from this game feeling like the Giants just had a massive missed opportunity. The, the biggest reason to me was penalties. They had 11 penalties in this game. Pretty much all of them were costly. Uh, they extended drives for Washington. They allowed, you know, they gave them second chances. They hurt drives for New York. Uh, for example, on one drive, they had two false starts in a row, and a third and five turned into a third and 15. That cannot happen if you want to win. And then, of course, on the final drive for Washington, there were two big mistakes. One would have been a penalty. Uh, the Giants luckily caught it before it happened. It was a third and five, and the Giants had to waste a timeout. Ah, waste is the wrong word there. It's the end of the game. That's why you keep your timeouts is for that moment. But the Giants had too many men in the field, so they had to take a timeout. Would have been a penalty. And then Washington kicked the game-winning field goal and missed. And you're like, and Giants fans are probably celebrating, of course. Like, yes! Oh, hallelujah, we win! Oh, but then that little yellow hanky, the one you've seen all game, showed up again. And uh, the Giants were offsides. And Washington got a re-kick. And on the re-kick, they made it Washington won 30-29. There was also, by the way, a long Daniel Jones touchdown run. That got called back, guess what? By a penalty. And I just, it's the same story over and over again with this game yesterday. Penalty, penalty, penalty. The Giants looked disorganized and undisciplined, which is a very crazy thing to say because I know their coach, Joe Judge, is a stickler. Like, he's a guy who's very, very attentive to detail and all about discipline. His whole message is, I'm a tough guy, rah, 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 we will be disciplined. Didn't see that, like, at all <laughs> against Washington. And not only did they have a touchdown called back, they also had one dropped. Darius Slayton dropped a touchdown. <sighs> just pain. Just painful. Again, the Giants fans had probably just a brutal long night last night. It could have been a slightly better throw, I guess. Like, I think Daniel Jones, maybe Darius Slayton was wide open deep. Maybe he takes, like, a little bit off and... It's like three or four inches, not as far downfield. Like, but you know, like you're splitting hairs at that point. At some point, if it catches the guy's hands, you got to catch the ball. That should have been a catch. That should have been a touchdown. You got to make a play in that moment. Darius Slayton did not. And receivers really made a difference in this game, both for Washington and against New York. Washington had a number of really big catches, whether it was Ricky Seals Jones who had a big catch in the right corner of the end zone, or you know, Terry McLaurin had a bunch of big catches. One, you know, he had 11 catches for. 107 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Logan Thomas had a big catch. J.D. McKissick had a big catch on a, like a, basically a wheel route down the right sideline. Adam Humphreys had a big catch at the end of the game. They, all those people had big catches in key moments for Washington. 
And the Giants receiving core had opportunities as well, but they failed to make those plays. Darius Slayton dropped a touchdown. Kenny Galladay had a memorable drop that I cannot get out of my head. It was not a good performance for the Washington, sorry, for the Giants receiving core. Then on top of all of that, there was only one turnover all game. Washington quarterback Taylor Heineke threw an interception late in the fourth quarter. And it just felt like the Giants were handed like opportunity after opportunity late in this game. And I, I really the only good news to walk out of this game for the Giants fans is, well, their quarterback, we'll get to that in a moment. But then also their kicker, Graham Gano was five for five kicking field goals. He's actually kicked and made 35 field goals in a row. It's kind of a bad thing, though, too. Like, you don't, yes, your kicker is good. Oh, congratulations. But also you never want to be kicking, like, settling for five field goals in one game. That happens because the Giants were four for 12 on third down. That's not great. It's really, really, in fact, really bad. So I want to talk about quarterbacks now. Uh, and I, we'll start with Washington because they won. Feels right to do that. I know a lot of people want to hear about Taylor Heineke. Last year in the playoffs, Taylor Heineke made his first ever NFL start in the playoffs again against Tom Brady, starting for the Washington football team. And on Thursday night, we learned that that was not a fluke. That playoff game where he played really well, almost beat Tom Brady. Taylor Heineke can play a little bit. He's a very solid, good quarterback. Threw for over 300 yards, two touchdowns. And by the way, he doesn't have the weirdest name ever, but I know that the I and the E are easy to get confused. And I have a little trick I used to remember how to spell his name. If anybody, I don't know if this is helpful for anybody, but all you have to remember to, in order to spell his name correctly, it's the H-E-I. After that, it's the name Nick, like the name Nick, and then the letter E. H-E-I, Nick, E. N-I-C-K. H-E-I, N-I-C-K-E. H-E-I, Nick, E. That's how you remember how to spell his name. It really helped me when I was like, oh. That's how you, I just, for them, from then on, oh, Taylor Heineke, I haven't screwed up his name ever since figuring that out. Uh, I loved watching this dude win. He wasn't drafted. Uh, I remember it, early in 2020, it was at almost two years ago now, I guess a year and a half, roughly, January, February 2020, when Taylor Heineke was the backup on the XFL Seattle, sorry, the, the St. Louis Battlehawks. I remember him in the blue jersey on the sideline behind Doran Ta'amu and Brogan Roback, the quarterback who was with the, crap, the Browns on hard knocks. Like, he was the third-string quarterback on an XFL team in February 2020, and now he's the starting quarterback for the Washington football team. That's an unbelievable story. What a cool journey he has had. Uh, now, this might be unpopular, and I want to be clear. Great story. Love the dude. Love his playing style. Taylor Heineke is really scrappy. He makes good decisions. He's fun to watch. I don't want to mean to I don't mean to rain on the parade here, but I would not build around Taylor Heineke. He's a perfect backup. You trust him. He can play if he needs to. He can win games. But Taylor Heineke should not be the franchise quarterback in Washington. When I look for quarterbacks, I'm looking for the next Josh Allen or Justin Herbert or Kyler Murray, someone with crazy high potential. I'm looking for basically like the Ferrari of quarterbacks. And I would say that Taylor Heineke is like the Ford focus of quarterbacks. You trust him enough. He's fine. He's good enough for now. And I would keep Heineke until I find something better. And I would not get rid of him. Even after, if I found a Justin Herbert or maybe uh, Malik Willis at Liberty is a guy who's got crazy high potential in college right now. Maybe the draft Malik Willis. I would still keep Taylor Heineke on my team. I trust him. He's a great backup. He can win if my starting quarterback gets hurt. 
But the entire time I would have Heineke on my football team, I would be looking for an upgrade. And that's really how I feel. Taylor Heineke is, is exactly what Washington needs right now. He's not going to last forever. But I would recommend fans enjoy it while it lasts. He's fun. He's cool. He can win a little bit. He's a good story. He's accurate. He's a pretty solid decision maker. Only had a couple throws last night where I was like, I wouldn't make that's a bad throw into like triple coverage. Don't make that happen. He can extend plays a little bit. But he's also small, has limited arm. I just don't look at Taylor Heineken and go, oh, wow, oh, my goodness, I'm so excited for his potential. But I like what he's done. He's done good work so far. I just, again, I wouldn't want the guy forever. Now let's talk about Giants quarterback Daniel Jones. I thought Daniel Jones had a great game against Washington. And I know it's popular to say he's a terrible quarterback, and you hear that all the time. But he's not terrible. And I've been saying this for a long, long time. Daniel Jones is just okay. He's not awful, and he's not great. Like, remember, both Daniel Jones and Justin Herbert were the number six overall pick in back-to-back years. Daniel Jones, number six overall in 2019. Justin Herbert, six overall, 2020. Justin Herbert clearly has way more potential than Daniel Jones. Just ask you, who would you rather have? Daniel Jones or Justin Herbert, even Giants fans have to be honest about that. It's a very easy decision. And I'm still waiting. It's year three for Daniel Jones now. And I'm still waiting for him to have the impressive pop-off kind of moment that Justin Herbert had the entire year last year and last week, week one against Washington. However, to be clear, this was the best game I have ever seen Daniel Jones play as an NFL quarterback. And I have been... Really critical of the guy his entire career, mostly simply because I have no patience because I think he's a limited quarterback. He's got a limited ceiling that I think can never become a top five quarterback in the NFL. And once you realize, hey, my guy can never become a Ferrari, I kind of give up on him. I'm like, ah, like he's just, he doesn't have that kind of potential. But I did walk away from this game thinking, hmm, this Daniel Jones guy, he lives to see another day. If he was awful, I would have said it. I've said it before when Daniel Jones played awful. And I remember Mitchell Trubisky in Chicago. I will never forget Mitchell Trubisky in Chicago. He's not Trubisky. Like, he's not awful. He's, he's totally fine. He's decent. He's solid. Uh, and actually, like, based on last night, he played pretty solid. And if he can do that the rest of his career, th- that's a great performance, what he did last night. He's only 24 years old. It's year three of his career. His second year in the same offense. Like, there's a chance here that... It goes really well, and Daniel Jones actually stays in New York, and I I just want to be clear. Like, I have an open mind, and I've had a closed mind this entire time, but okay, he's 24 years old. It's only year three. Let's see how the year goes before we condemn Daniel Jones, especially because he's playing well. Like, if he plays terrible by week eight, if he's, like, awful every week until week eight, by week eight, I'll give up on him. But right now, this moment after week two in the NFL season, I got an open mind. I don't have confidence he can keep it up, but again— The way he played against Washington, no turnovers, made good throws, gave receivers opportunities. His footwork is really good. Daniel Jones looked comfortable and confident in his offense. He knew exactly where to go with the football every single play. And it just, he knows his offense really well. It's a big deal. Like his comfort level was an all-time high against Washington. And again, if he can do that every single week, I don't know, man. Another thought, I love the way Daniel Jones runs his own read. It's very cool that... Jason Garrett, the offensive coordinator, has stuck with it. It keeps calling it because he's great at it. I mean, he had this, what did he have? He ran nine times for 95 yards and a touchdown. Daniel Jones was a leading rusher 
for the Giants last night. That's awesome. I, I love seeing that. And to be clear, another exciting fact that is, it feels almost like a victory in of itself is that Daniel Jones was not the reason why the Giants lost. Like, oh, hallelujah. Can you believe it? Dude made a lot of good throws, and he deserves praise. He had a really good game last night, and I understand anybody who wants to give up on Daniel Jones. I've been that guy for a long time because I realized his potential a long time ago. I'm, I'm, this guy doesn't have the potential to, I think, ever be a top-five quarterback. But if he does what he did last night consistently the rest of the year, I have an open mind. That's, that's good enough. Like, that's, that's enough. Now, the leash is very short. You ever seen a, gosh, what, you ever play Mario, like Mario 64, where if you get close to the ball bomb guys, they chase you and they explode. The fuse is really, really short, kind of like one of those guys in Mario 64 where, hey, if Daniel Jones gets even close to the edge of being a bad quarterback, I'm out. Like, I have no patience for the guy. But if he plays good and consistent like he did like that all year long, I got patience for that. By the way, weird thought, I also really liked the, all blue sock cleat combo. He had it look really clean down low. Uh, it's a good look. It made him look faster, which is weird, but it, it's true. Um, and I just, I don't know. I, I just think that Daniel Jones deserves hate when he earns it. But last night, there's no reason to hate Daniel Jones. In fact, he did nothing wrong to earn a loss last night. Now, the final thing is uh, from this game, we're two games into the NFL season, and I'm ready to believe that this Washington defense is overhyped. They had a hard time getting pressure on Daniel Jones. Uh, I expected it to be like the Arizona Cardinals-Tennessee Titans game from week one where they just got pressure constantly and were harassing Daniel Jones all night. That didn't happen. Washington's pass rush did not dominate like I expected. And by the way, that's two weeks in a row they've been ineffective getting after a quarterback. And also, the Giants' offensive line is not good. Like They should not be having trouble getting pressure after Daniel Jones like they did on Thursday night. And during my predictions for the Washington football team, I asked a couple questions. I said this. I said, was Washington's defense great last year? Or did they just play a really weak schedule last year that inflated their stats and inflated their numbers? Remember, they were the number two defense on paper last year in the NFL. But were they actually really the second best defense in the entire league? Well, here are six of the seven wins Washington had last year. They beat the Eagles twice. They beat the Dallas Cowboys twice without Dak Prescott. They played Joe Burrow, who got hurt partway through the game and left early. And they beat the 49ers with a backup quarterback, Nick Mullins. Six of their victories, most of them were against bad quarterbacks or bad teams or even straight-up backup quarterbacks. That's ridiculous. I think it's possible and even likely that Washington's defense have made it look even better than they were last year. Because they played a really weak schedule. I mean, playing Ryan Finley, Andy Dalton, and Nick Mullins at quarterback tends to make defenses look good. So I, again, am starting to believe, huh, maybe this Washington defense really is overhyped and last year was a fluke because they played really bad quarterbacks over and over and over again. Okay, uh, let's shift gears to Arizona. I, I don't know if that was a clear ending or not. <laughs> I did my best. Um, a lot of ending a topic is just inflection. Like, you have to go... And, or, and you have to kind of just let it sit and die. And I don't know if I did a good enough job there. Let me know. I'm tired, dude. I, I'm not going to ramble. Let's just jump into topic number two. During week one of the NFL season, the Arizona Cardinals beat the Tennessee Titans 38-13. to 13. And I finally sat down and watched the game. 
And look, Arizona dominated pretty much the entire game. Every way they could, they dominated last week against Tennessee. The Cardinals quarterback, Kyler Murray, had five touchdowns, four throwing, one rushing. The Cardinals sacked Titans quarterback Ryan Tannehill six times. Chandler Jones had five sacks on his own. Chandler Jones also had two forced fumbles. Both of them led to Arizona touchdowns. Titans star running back Derrick Henry had only 58 yards rushing on 17 carries on Sunday. That's awful. I mean, look, Arizona's defense dominated. It was a really fun performance to watch, especially the defensive line. The combination of J.J. Watt and Chandler Jones in their first ever game playing together. Oh, boy. It was a great great start. And uh, I hope they could be dominant all year. They got to stay healthy. But if you want hope, you have it in Arizona. Now, I have two thoughts that are in conflict with each other. Last year, I predicted the Arizona Cardinals to go 12-4. and And I got burned. I really remember being very confident they were going to have a great year. And part of it was, hey, Kyler Murray got hurt, was hurt half the year last year. Part of it was they missed a couple field goals. And then most of it was, last year, Arizona had bad coaching. They were awful with penalties. And there's a small part of me that wants to go, like, ha, I told you so. I knew Arizona would be good. I was just one year early believing in them. But that feels intellectually dishonest for a couple of reasons. And I'm not going to do that. Partially because it's only one game. Like, you, you played one game. You beat Tennessee. Let's see where Arizona is in week 10. Like, can they keep it up? Are they actually a good football team? We don't know that yet. But also, I actually, even if it was, we're basing their season so far on one game, which I guess we kind of are. Even in this one game they, where they dominated Tennessee, there were some problems that showed up problems of the past that Arizona has really, really struggled with showed up and reared their ugly head. I think part of it was Tennessee just played so bad that it was easy to miss the flaws that this Cardinals team had playing uh, in this game. Arizona had penalty after penalty after penalty on offense. It was ridiculous. Like they had drives that should not have been completed, that should have not had touchdown, that should have not had field goals because they kept you know, taking step back after step back after step back and then finding a way to overcome those penalties. And that's great, but that's not sustainable. Either the penalties are going to catch up to Arizona and they're not going to score a lot of points next week or in the weeks coming, or they're going to have to clean up the penalties and then play really actually efficient offense. And again, I just insist that part of why Arizona was able to overcome the penalties they had against Tennessee was because Tennessee was playing so badly, it just made Arizona look good. I mean, less than seven minutes into this game, the Cardinals had to burn two timeouts on offense because of disorganization and problems lining up and running out of time. It awful, awful disorganized football. And then Kyler threw a fade into the end zone. It wasn't good coverage. I remember whoever the backup quarterback, not Janoris Jenkins, the other one, uh, Kendall, Kindle something, was covering A.J. Green. And the guy did not play good coverage. A.J. Green was open, should have been a touchdown. But the defender knocked the ball away because it was terrible timing between A.J. Green and, frankly, a bad throw by Kyler Murray. And then there was a third and three where Cardinals receivers Christian Kirk and A.J. Green literally ran into each other. And I'm watching this going like, what is going on? This is supposed to be a coach that is an offensive genius, Cliff Kingsbury, who looks disorganized, who has penalties, who has people running into each other. The timing is terrible. Arizona, week one, looked really, really talented but also really, really undisciplined. And I am not all in yet on Arizona. I am very cautiously optimistic. They showed promise. The defense looked great. 
Kyler Murray is an incredible young quarterback, one of the best young quarterbacks in the entire NFL. I think highly, highly underrated Kyler Murray is. Part of why he had a, a lower, a, a down year last year is because he was hurt for half the year. But also, the Cardinals' offense was far from perfect. Penalties were a huge problem. I know it's week one. But last year, they were the most penalized team on offense in the entire NFL. And I, I still see the lingering effects of that from last year on their season this year. And time truly will tell how good Arizona is. I am not confident in them yet. I, I'm hopeful. I want them to be good. I love Kyler Murray. I do not trust Cliff Kingsbury, their head coach. And I worry that Arizona will underachieve because they're talented, yes, but also they'll be disorganized and get in their own way. All right, uh, Evan wrote in about this Titans-Cardinals game on Patreon. Evan says this, Dear Zach, as a Titans fan, I was excited to see what Henry Jones and Brown could do. As you said on the podcast, how could anyone stop our offense? Well, our non-existent offensive line and uninspired play calling gave us the answer to that today. Taylor Lewan looked bad, and Downing showed why the Raiders hated him. I know this is just week one, but this showing was far below expectations yeah, Evan, I worry that I got so excited about the three-headed monster that is Julio Jones, A.J. Green, or A.J. Brown, and Derrick Henry. I got so excited about these three players, like how to stop them offensively. I forgot, what about the rest of their team? Like, I wonder if I let that cloud my judgment. Like, did I really overlook how bad their offensive line is? Tennessee was really, really disappointing week one, and they played horrible. Two touchdown drops on the same drive. A missed field goal, a mixed extra, mixed extra point. Ryan Tannehill had three turnovers, two fumbles, and an interception. Derrick Henry, 17 carries for 58 yards. It's not good. The offensive line was awful. Taylor Lewan got dominated by Chandler Jones, and it was concerning over and over and over again. Like, that's Taylor Lewan? Like, I, I know he just, what, what's going on here? It was crazy to me. And I worry that I was way, way too optimistic about Tennessee going into the year. Now, it's one game. I don't want to heavily overreact. We'll see where they are week 10. I keep saying that about every single team. Like, we don't actually know. Maybe Tennessee just had a terrible game, like a, a bad start, and that's what happens. But then I look at their next game, week two at Seattle on the road against Russell Wilson, and I'm like, oh, boy, oh, no. Based on what I saw last week, I have no confidence now that Tennessee can win this football game. And it's first of all, it's going to screw up my predictions horribly, right? I, I picked Seattle to lose that game. I thought Tennessee would be better. But also, it's going to ruin Tennessee's season to start 0-2. So I really, really have concerns about Tennessee. It was alarming they got destroyed and shellacked by Arizona Week 1. It's one thing to lose a game that's competitive. Losing 38-3 to against a team that's playing undisciplined and still getting your butts kicked, that is a really big concern. That's what happened in Tennessee last week in Week 1. Very, very concerning. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll talk about uh, the Bills Steelers game. We'll talk about Bengals Vikings uh, top stories for NFL Week Two. Ask Zach, Formula One, all that and more. My name is Zach Shomler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing very, very well. Uh, let's talk about the Bengals and the Vikings. What a game. So, Week One. The Bengals beat the Vikings 27-24 to in overtime. Uh, it was a really fun game. Look, both teams had a shot to win in overtime. The Bengals had the ball three times. The Vikings had two possessions in overtime. Uh, I want to start with what I learned about the Cincinnati Bengals in this game. Number one, Joe Burrow played very, very well. He limped a bit after getting sacked at one point, but he also had a play where he avoided a sack and spun out. So 
I thought early on his knee looked really, really good. I'm like, oh, hey, Joe Burrow is not going to struggle at all coming back. The limping later was a question mark. But overall, Joe Burrow played at a really, really high level. It was fun to watch. I love the guy. I love watching him do well. Uh, literally, like, Joe Burrow only had two bad plays the entire game. They actually happened back-to-back. He had a play on a second and six where uh, he had Mike Thomas wide open. Would have been a touchdown, but he threw an inaccurate throw. Just missed him. It's like, ooh, that's not good. Uh, and then on the very next play, third and six, Joe Burrow threw a bad ball that bounced off of a Vikings corner uh, Mackenzie Alexander's helmet. I was like, oh, that should have been an interception. And instead of a pick, it actually bounced into his receiver's hands. Uh, got lucky there. But other than those two plays, Joe Burrow literally had a perfect game. I loved watching it. I love seeing him do well. I also, I really liked what Zach Taylor, the Bengals head coach, did. His play calling was really good. He's a former quarterback at Nebraska. I am, I've got an open mind, as always. I try to like everybody I can. And I thought what he did week one was impressive, and I'm warming up to him. I I thought it was a really hard matchup against, look, whether you love or hate Mike Zimmer, his defenses are always really good for Minnesota, and the the game plan and the play design against Minnesota, a team that confuses young quarterbacks, they have great blitzes, they come after teams. I thought that Zach Taylor did a really good job combating the stuff that Mike Zimmer threw in against him uh, with the Vikings defense. Now, Joe Mixon, the Bengals' running back, was outstanding. He had 29 carries for 127 yards, a touchdown. Uh, He had 4.4 yards per carry. Joe Mixon was very, very impressive. Also, the Bengals' defensive line deserves a shout-out. They have three new starters on their D-line. They have D-end, Trey Hendrickson, D-tackle, Larry Ogunjobi. And then they made a low-profile move before the season started in August for uh, defensive tackle B.J. Hill. And... Those guys plus Sam Hubbard at D-end uh, are a great group that really complement each other well. Sam Hubbard and Trey Hendrickson coming off the edge really, uh, it's a good dynamic that helps the interior defensive linemen succeed, and it caused problems for the Vikings offensive line all game long. Now finally, I'm happy for Bengals rookie kicker Evan McPherson. This is how his first ever NFL game went. He was 3-for-3 three three kicking extra points, he had two field goals, he had the game winner in overtime. Really, really great day for him. It's just a, a fun aside, like, wow, what a great way to start your career if you're Evan McPherson. Very, very happy for him. Uh, now, Patreon uh, has two questions that I got, I guess, what am I saying? Uh, ben and Andrew wrote in on Patreon with two questions that I want to read. Uh, you can write in as well. Go to patreon.com forward slash Zach Schaumler. Let me pull it up. Ben said, not a Bengals fan, but they looked good. Well-disciplined compared to Minnesota, who had a ton of holding penalties. Burrow kept them in the game, and Chase looked good. Fun overtime game that went down to the wire. Then Andrew replied to that. He said, I agree. He said, I disagree with Zach's take on the Bengals passing on Panay Sewell to take Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase and Joe Burrow were just special at LSU, and it looked like a generational quarterback-receiver relationship. The chemistry was always on sync. Burrow just always know what Chase is going to do. They They had a neat offensive line, but so what? You don't pass on that level of receiver or tight end quarterback chemistry. They're like Brady and Gronk, Rodgers and Jordy Nelson, or Mahomes and Kelsey. They were meant to be reunited. They will always be, there will always be other linemen. One of the few times you just have to go with your heart over your head. Uh, look, I was really skeptical of the Jamar Chase draft pick uh, when they picked him over left tackle Panay because, look, you can always use a left tackle. I think that's a, uh, you never pass on a guy who's a surefire, really good left tackle. Uh, but I, I will say, man, uh, Jamar Chase had a big impact week one. He had five catches for 101 yards and a touchdown. 
And frankly, Jamar Chase was a big reason why the Bengals won. And so after one week, it already looks like Cincinnati drafted the right guy by drafting Jamar Chase. And that makes me, I was skeptical, but being able to say that makes me very, very happy. Now, Minnesota, uh, week one in the loss to Cincinnati, the Vikings offensive line, they were a problem. Uh, Minnesota had 12 penalties in this game. 11 of them were on offense and nine of them were on their offensive line. That is awful. Like, yikes, that just cannot happen with your offensive line. Uh, It just, they are a big concern moving forward. Not only their ability to block concerns me, but also their lack of discipline is a huge, huge problem that's going to hinder Minnesota all year long if they don't clean that up. Uh, Now, Vikings quarterback Kirk Cousins played pretty well. Nothing, like, amazing, but definitely had a good game. Uh, Big shout-out to the Vikings' second-year receiver, though. K.J. Osborne is a guy who... I knew Adam Thielen was good. I knew that Justin Jefferson was a stud. But K.J. Osborne, uh, a second-year receiver in Minnesota, might have a breakout year. He had seven catches for 76 yards and multiple catches in big moments. He had one on a fourth and one. Like, he made some big plays. And listen, K.J. Osborne is a name maybe you should pay attention to and maybe learn because he had a really, really good game week one against Cincinnati. Now, I feel bad for Dalvin Cook, uh, the Vikings running back week one. His game was tainted by a fumble in overtime, and I'm honestly not even sure it was actually a fumble. To me, it looked like he was down, and then the ball got ripped out. But it was ruled a fumble on the field, which means that in the you know when you review it, you have to have enough evidence to overturn that it wasn't actually a fumble, and there wasn't enough evidence. It's very brutal. It's like I I think Dalvin Cook kind of got screwed, quite frankly, and 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 you know along with the Minnesota, but really Dalvin Cook is a guy who has to bear the brunt of that. Uh, you know, that loss because of the, quote, fumble that he had at the end of overtime. Uh, I actually want to take a left turn here and praise Dalvin Cook. I, I thought he, look, he blocking did really good all game. I, I think Dalvin Cook is a supremely underrated running back who does really, really fantastic professional-level work. Uh, and he had this touchdown run on the goal line where he made it look so easy. And people, I think, look at what Dalvin Cook can do. And because he makes it look so easy, it's easy to overlook him and not appreciate what he does. But his vision is incredible. And he made a good cut inside where the Bengals had defenders in the backfield. And he just went, whoop, cut inside. And other running backs might have gotten stopped in the backfield, but not him. Uh, Instead of getting tackled for a loss, Dalvin Cook turned it into a touchdown. It was a great run on first and goal. It's little things like that that Dalvin Cook does over and over again that I really, really appreciate and make him a very special running back. Also, shout out to the Vikings' new kicker, Greg Joseph. Uh, he made it the game-tying field goal. He kicked it not once, but two different times at the end of regulation. Uh, the first time he kicked it, Cincinnati called a field goal trying to ice him. But hey, look, Greg Joseph was totally unbothered. I really respected that. Uh, he kicked it again and made the 53-yard field goal two times in a row. Uh, that's really good kicking. And if you're a Vikings fan, you know that that is something their team needs. And so I look at Greg Joseph, a guy who... You know, like you know, ice cold veins of steel, just kicking a fifty-three yard field goal two times in a row, not bothered at all by the the situation or the 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 timeout or any of that stuff. I think that's exactly what the Vikings need from their kicker, and I'm really excited about Greg Joseph, their new guy, because the dude looked really, really good week one. Okay, um, let's talk about the Bills and Steelers game. I don't have a lot to say here, but I want to talk about it briefly. I watched the Bills and Steelers game. Pittsburgh won 23-16. It felt like a matchup of two 
playoff teams. And I thought it was hard fought. It was interesting. Uh, you know, Pittsburgh took a long time to get going. They had five punts in the first half alone, just five possessions, five punts, nothing happening. Uh, you know, the Bills were up actually 10 to nothing right at halftime. Now, Josh Allen, the Bills quarterback, did not play his best game. And that's one of my, my key notes here is that, he, yes, he had a great touchdown pass in a tight window. I put it on Twitter. I put it on my Instagram story. Like, Josh Allen had a moment or two that was really outstanding. But he also was really inconsistent and inaccurate throughout the game. He did not make great decisions. This is one of the worst games I've seen Josh Allen play in a long, long time. And part of it's because the bar has been raised so high by his play he had last year. But he needs to be better in week two. And I'm not hitting the panic button, nothing like that. But I will say that if you're a, a Bills fan, you you expect much higher and much better play from Josh Allen, your young quarterback. And what he did week one just didn't. It didn't move the needle. It wasn't that impressive to me. It was kind of like, oh, like, really? I, I know you're better than that. Like, come on. Uh, now, Big Ben, the Steelers quarterback, really struggled to push the ball vertically downfield. He had multiple deep balls along the sideline, and there were underthrows. There were 50-50 balls. I, I, Big Ben played really well, accurate, good timing, got the ball out of his hands really quickly. But the one concern I have from week one was, oh, no. It looks like Big Ben really is going to struggle to stretch the field vertically. Uh, maybe the same way we saw Drew Brees struggle with that last year. And I, I, I have never seen Big Ben throw the ball down the sideline and not look impressive before. That was a weird thing where maybe I, I fear and wonder if Big Ben's age is starting to show. Now, one of those 50-50 balls he threw was to Chase Claypool, who knew Chase Claypool had this massive catch just stealing the ball away from Tremaine, uh, from Tredavious White, excuse me, Tredavious White, uh, who is a really, really good corner for the Buffalo Bills. And I just want to say I was really impressed with the the catch by Chase Claypool. I love the guy. They call him uh, Mapletron because he's Canadian, and he, that's a play on Megatron, the you know, the the Calvin Johnson nickname. I just want to say, like, I, I love Chase Claypool. That catch is incredible. I'm excited to watch him develop as the year goes on. He also had another big catch later in the game to kind of ice the game and help Pittsburgh win. Uh, Buffalo might have had a chance to win this game. However, late in their late in the fourth quarter, maybe it was early fourth quarter, with like ten minutes left or something like that. I remember, you know, Buffalo was trying to punt the ball, and oh, they got it blocked, and Pittsburgh ran it for a touchdown, and that that made the gap just too big. You know, after giving up a touchdown on a punt block, uh, Buffalo kind of it kind of put the game out of reach for Buffalo. They were not able to score enough points, and I remember thinking like. Oh, great. Like Buffalo, yes, they do have uh, a, a possession here, but it's not enough. And I don't have any confidence based on the way Buffalo have been moving the ball all game. I just didn't think they were going to be able to score to be able to score 10 points in 10 minutes and make it a game. I just I, frankly, like Buffalo struggled so much all night. And part of that was because of the Steelers defense. So Devin writes in, he says, I'd love to hear you talk about the Steelers edge rushers, TJ Watt, Alex Highsmith and Melvin Ingram. They really limited what the Bills could do the entire game. Uh, so, Devin, you're right. I, one thing they did was get pressure. Uh, they stopped the run. Like, I, I think that that's great. But the thing I want to highlight about the, the, the pass rush and the edge rushers for Pittsburgh is that they get their hands up. And if you're a quarterback, it's so frustrating when you're trying to throw the ball and there are hands in your face or in your passing lane. And multiple times they tip passes from Josh Allen, who is not a short quarterback. Like, people always say it's about height, and they say, like, you know, Kyler Murray gets a ball stopped, you know, blocked and tipped because he's short. That's not true. It's just that teams are good at getting their arms up. And 
Pittsburgh, on top of getting pressure and stopping the run and doing all kinds of stuff like that, they also disrupt the game by tipping passes at the line of scrimmage. It's so infuriating if you're a quarterback trying to throw a pass and they just knock it out of the air. And that's the one thing I wanted to shout out about the Pittsburgh Steelers' edge rushers. This is actually not the way they get after the quarterback, which they are incredible at. But it's a way they get their hands up and knock down passes at the line of scrimmage. And that is the most tedious and little frustrating thing they do in games that really, really impacts the way that opposing quarterbacks can play. So, yeah, shout out to that. Uh, Bill Steelers, look, the Bills... I, I I just wonder, like, was it just a bad day for Josh Allen? Like, what happened there? Because he did not look good week one, and uh, I, a part of that is I, I think the Steelers are way better than people realize. I had them as a playoff team. I stand by that. I think that the only reason they don't win their division is because of the Cleveland Browns, who are even better. But it's going to come down to Browns or Steelers in the AFC North, and I feel very, very confident in my uh, my decision to say, hey, I think the Steelers are a playoff team. All right, guys, I'm going to take a short break. When I return, uh, we'll do the top storylines for NFL Week 2. That'll be a very short, quick topic. Uh, We'll talk about Formula One. We'll do Ask Zach. My name is Zach Shomler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing very, very well. Uh, Let's jump into Week 2. There are 10 big storylines that I cannot wait to see play out during NFL Week 2. Number one is the 49ers at the Eagles. This will be very, very interesting because the Eagles smacked Atlanta last week. However, I look at at Atlanta and see a bad football team, and so I'm not that impressed by that victory. So the question is, can Philly beat a good football team? It should be a good test for them. Having the 49ers come to their home stadium should be very interesting. I'm excited to watch the 49ers at the Eagles. Number two, Monday Night Football. The Lions at the Packers. The question is, how will Green Bay bounce back from getting shellacked week one by the Saints, 38-3? to uh, Playing the Lions feels like a great game and a great opportunity for them to rebound, but keep your eye on the Packers. How do they do week two after getting beat really badly week one? Number three, Bengals at the Bears. Uh, it should be very fun. Andy Dalton's playing his former football team, the Cincinnati Bengals. I think the Bengals win this football game, and I look at Chicago's schedule coming up, it's tough. You have week three at Cleveland. That's a, a football team that's very, very good. Now you have two winnable games for the Bears. Week four, they play Detroit. Week five, they play at Vegas. But then after that, you play the Packers at Tampa, the 49ers, and then the Steelers. So the Bears need to win on Sunday. And if they don't, they start 0-2. It's really rough sledding from here on out for the Chicago Bears. Number four, Cowboys at Chargers. Should be really, really interesting It's an opportunity for the Chargers to legitimize themselves, really show how good of a football team they are. Uh, I'm excited to watch Dak Prescott play. Anytime getting to watch him play quarterback for the Cowboys is really, really exciting. Uh, Also on a side note, Cowboys defensive end Demarcus Lawrence got hurt. He broke his foot. And that's a tough loss for this Cowboys football team who will not be at full strength against a very, very good L.A. Chargers football team. Number five, you have the Rams at the Colts. Oh, boy, it's two teams that have new quarterbacks. It's Carson Wentz and Matthew Stafford. That should be really, really interesting there. Uh, But I worry because the Colts have a ton of injuries. They, you know, corner Xavier Rhodes is out. Right tackle Braden Smith is out. Uh, You know, guard Quinton Nelson is questionable. Left tackle Eric Fisher is questionable. You have a banged up Colts offensive line against the Rams and Aaron Donald. That feels like a recipe for disaster. And I am very worried for the Colts this week. I think they might get beaten... And it might be ugly against the Rams. 
Week six, Bills at Dolphins will be very, very fun. Josh Allen did not have a great week last week against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, I am looking for the Bills to bounce back, have a better game this week against Miami. It's a really good match. These are two playoff caliber teams. Miami's really good. They got a good defense. I want to see how does Josh Allen do after having a good but not great week during week one against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Number seven, Saints at Panthers. Was week one a fluke for the Saints quarterback, Jameis Winston? That is what I want to find out. Uh, Will he keep playing at a high level? I I hope so. I really like the guy. I'm rooting for him. I'm also excited to watch Panthers quarterback Sam Darnold, but the storyline here is how good really is Jameis Winston? Was last week a one-hit wonder, or can he keep it up and play at a high level the rest of the year? Number eight, Raiders at Steelers. How good are the Raiders? I think they're good. They beat the Ravens on Monday Night Football. It was a crazy fun victory. But Pittsburgh has this phenomenal, phenomenal defense. Their front seven is terrifying. And Pittsburgh also has some good weapons on offense. So it'll be a fun game. And it's kind of a good litmus test for the Vegas Raiders. How good are they really? Can they go toe-to-toe? I don't even care if the Raiders win this game. But can they keep it interesting and keep it close against the Pittsburgh Steelers, who I think are a playoff football team? Number nine, Vikings at Cardinals. This could be a really big day for the Cardinals' defensive line. They're playing a weaker offensive line with Minnesota. And the question here is, can Arizona win a game they're supposed to win? They should win this game. If they are who their fan base tells me they are, then they should win easily. Now, both teams do really struggle with offensive penalties. That'll be a storyline to follow. But Arizona should win. The question is, will they? And then number 10, the Titans at Seattle. Seattle should win this game based on what I saw week one. Uh, Tennessee has no way to stop Russell Wilson, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. The Seahawks offense looked really, really good week one. I like their new offensive uh, coordinator, Shane Waldron. I expect Seattle to win really, really big, uh, and I'm worried for Tennessee, but we will see if that does indeed happen. Again, I I think Seattle wins by a lot, but, you know, hey, expectations versus reality are not always the same thing, so that'll be a really interesting storyline to follow. How does Seattle play hosting Tennessee? All right, guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I am going to take a short break. When I return, we will do, we'll talk about F1. We will do Ask Zach. I got some general news coming up too as well. My name is Zach Schaumler. I will be right back. All right, we are back. Hope you're doing very, very well. Let's talk about Cleveland to start. Browns wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. will not play week two against the Houston Texans. Uh, he is still cu- recovering from an ACL tear. To me, it's not a big deal. A lot of people are going, oh, OBJ, hurt again, another year injured. And they don't realize he's still coming back from an injury. And I, I think you have to have this perspective. Like, I would rather have the guy, if, if you're a Browns fan, you wanted to come back fully healthy. Why would you want Odell Beckham Jr. to rush back and potentially re-injure himself or throw his whole season off kilter? I, I, it makes no sense to me. I will always err on the side if it's better for players to not rush it and come back when they're fully healthy, especially on a team that doesn't really need him. Like, if Cleveland really struggles to beat Houston without Odell Beckham Jr., there's a way bigger problem there in Cleveland. I I just don't know that they need that. And it kind of reminds me of delaying a video game. Anytime I see video game news where I hear a game I'm excited for gets delayed, part of me is sad because, like, oh, I want to play that game sooner. But I'm like, well, if they're going to work on it longer— and it has more time to develop, isn't that better? Like, I would rather get a better game than have a game rushed out and come back to me early. It's the same principle with Odell Beckham Jr. Why would you want him to rush back 
into playing when you can wait till he's fully healthy and then have a great year from whatever point he comes back on. I just don't know why Browns fans are having this negative attitude. If, if Odo Beckham Jr. came back week four, but was fully healthy and had a huge impact and was a star, isn't that better than him coming back week two and potentially re-injuring himself or who knows what could happen? I just, I don't get it. And I think I will never complain if patience means a better result in the future. That's what I think will happen with Odo Beckham Jr. And I think I just think people are massively overreacting to this story of him still, you know, quote, still out with an injury. It's like, yeah, give him time to fully heal and recover. All right, I heard a crazy, I heard, I saw on Instagram, a crazy Derek Carr stat. I put him on my Instagram story. I want to share it, though, too. Apparently, no quarterback has won more. Okay, wow, I got to back up. Apparently, no quarterback has more game-winning drives than Derek Carr since 2015. Derek Carr has 24 game-winning drives since that year, 2015. Three more than any other quarterback around the league. And, and that just gives me more ammo to maintain. I truly fundamentally believe Derek Carr is massively underrated. I, I think he's a guy who, if you put the right pieces around him, he can win a Super Bowl. He's very good. He is like somewhere between like 13, 12, 11, top 10 quarterback, right right at the edge of 10. And I, I just, I did a whole topic about guys I would take before him. I said he's on par with Dak Prescott and people are all offended. I'm like, no, it says more about how good Derek Carr is and how bad Dak Prescott is. I think Dak Prescott's awesome. And Derek Carr is right there with him and deserves more respect and more credit, frankly. So Derek Carr is a fantastic young quarterback. All right, I saw a report running around the, uh, the league today. Today it was today, a couple days ago. I saw a report that said Urban Meyer, the Jaguars head coach. Urban Meyer becomes, quote, unhinged too easily. He flies off the handle. He yells at people. He threatens their jobs. He told coaches that their job security was on the line. After preseason losses, which, by the way, is ridiculous because preseason games do not matter at all in the NFL. He can't handle losing. He takes over drills at practice. He does them himself. He yells at coaches. He literally, I, the, the quote was like he tells them he's looking over their shoulder all the time. Basically, Urban Meyer is not creating a good environment for the people that work for him. And when you treat coaches poorly, by the way, coaches that you handpicked to be on your staff, very weird and uncomfortable and I see red flags galore with the operation Urban Meyer is running in Jacksonville and I gotta say man I'm really really curious to see how things play out because you just don't hear stories like that when you look around the rest of the NFL you don't hear stories about other head coaches that you hear about Urban Meyer and Urban Meyer is a special kind of bad going on in Jacksonville and I don't want to judge too harshly like I was worried about the coach in Philadelphia Nick Sirianni's doing a great job, and I haven't heard a bad thing about him, actually. He had one bad press conference at it. The contrast between Nick Sirianni and Jacksonville with Urban Meyer is unbelievable. Nick, Nick Sirianni's coach of the year compared to Urban Meyer, and I just think that people got to start paying attention really, like, being aware of the red flags that Urban Meyer is showing us over and over again. And I just, uh, it's problematic stuff that's going down in Jacksonville. Let's shift to Formula One. Uh, I, I'm so excited for this. I finally watched the Italian Grand Prix. It was on Sunday morning. I apologize I'm late. Uh, that game took place the same day that NFL Week 1 kicked off. Uh, Saturday night leading up to the race was an all-nighter for me. I was busy editing my predictions and previews and trying to get everything out I could. I think I uploaded literally like 35 videos that morning. 
I was a little busy to be watching an, uh, an F1 race, which isn't my bread and butter. People realize that my number one thing is football. I have to cover that. Uh, I will cover the Russian Grand Prix much more quickly. Hopefully, uh, Monday morning, my race review will come out for the Russian Grand Prix in Sochi this upcoming week. Anyway, I did watch the race from last weekend, and it was a wild one. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Lewis and Max collided. Danny Ricardo won. It was a blast to watch. I want to break it all down. Uh, I want to start by talking about Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton crashing. So Lewis just had re-entered the track from a pit stop, and Max was really, really pissed because he just had an 11-second pit stop. He'd went around the track one time and had gone from second place to 10th and was really upset about losing his positioning, and he did not want to give up his position to Lewis Hamilton. So Max drove up alongside Lewis as they went around a corner, and they crashed going around the turn. It was a scary crash, like terrifying. I put a video on my Instagram story. I put it on Twitter. Max Verstappen had all four wheels off the ground, and he climbed up on top of Lewis Hamilton's car. Like, it's one of those things where you see Max Verstappen's car on top of Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes, and you have this awakening moment, and you're like, thank goodness for the halo. Without the halo, Mercedes driver Lewis Hamilton might have literally died. And anyone who had any opposition to the halo was proved on Sunday, like, ah, you were ridiculous. Anybody who didn't want the halo in Formula One, I think was just flat out wrong because you would have lost one of the greatest drivers, if not the greatest driver in Formula One history, Lewis Hamilton. He's definitely in the conversation. And minimum would have been severely injured by literally Max Verstappen's car landing on top of him. And it was ugly. And I, I do fear this is not the end of battling and crashing between Max and Lewis. Max and Lewis are number one and number two in the title fight in Formula One, battling for the F1 championship. And a few races ago in Silverstone, remember Lewis made Max crash and Max did not finish the race and Max was angry. And I thought in that moment, oh no, this is going to escalate. And it did. And and I think it's going to continue to escalate. These guys do not like each other. They're not happy. Go watch the way Max Verstappen walks away from the car, furious at Lewis Hamilton. Lewis is trying to reverse, get his car out from underneath of Max Verstappen's car. Uh, And I, there's a lot of bad blood here. It's going to be ugly moving forward between these two drivers. Now, the question that's interesting about this race is, who's to blame? Do you blame Max Verstappen or do you blame Lewis? And the argue in favor of Max Verstappen is that Lewis did not leave room for Max as he went around the corner. They, you know, basically, the argument is Lewis Hamilton cut off Max Verstappen, didn't leave him room. That's what caused the crash. Now, the race stewards determined that Max had no right to the corner, that he made his move too late. Basically, Max was too far behind Lewis Hamilton to have any right to that corner. He should have backed off. He didn't. He went, tried to make a move and caused a wreck. And remember, I'm a big fan of Max Verstappen. I root for the guy. I would love to see him get a world championship. I would love to see him beat Lewis Hamilton. But I agree. Even as a Max Verstappen fan, that crash was on Max. And that's divisive. I don't normally take a side. I try to present both sides. I remember watching the race thinking like, don't go for it, Max. That's, that's not a good idea. Don't go for it. And he did. And it cost him. And he's a very, very aggressive driver. That Again, that aggression caught up to him here against Lewis Hamilton uh, in Italy. And I thought he made an emotional decision rather than being patient and waiting till he had a good opportunity to pass Lewis Hamilton. He rushed it. He was angry. He was pissed. He was trying to make up for lost time. And Lewis 
got crashed because Max Verstappen made an emotional choice rather than a calculated one. That was not a clear-headed, calculated Max Verstappen that caused that accident in Italy. So Max got a three-place grid penalty for the start of the next race in Russia. Uh, The best Max can qualify next week in Sochi is fourth in qualifying. And because of the penalty now, Red Bull might also double up. They're like, hey, we're going to maybe start fourth anyway. We're going to have a penalty, a three-place grid penalty. Maybe we start Max at the back of the grid because Max is going to need a fourth engine or fourth power unit at some point during this season. He's already had three power units he's gone through. He's on his third right now. If he has another power unit and uses a fourth, he's going to have to take a penalty like Valtteri Botas actually had in Italy where you start at the back of the grid. And it's likely, again, the foresight for Red Bull is, hey, Max is going to need a fourth power unit at some point anyway this year. Why not bite the bullet? We're going to get penalized anyway. Let's double up, take another penalty, start at the back of the grid, and get him his fourth power unit now for Saatchi in Russia. I think it's risky, though. I don't know that that's a good idea. I think it would be an unforced error to make that happen. I, I don't think it's a good idea to switch out your power unit before you really need a new one. Because what if Max crashes and then ends up needing a... He, he, what if he has his fourth one in Saatchi? And then crashes and needs another one, a fifth one, later down the year, or road, later in the year. So I would wait to swap mine until Lewis does, because, hey, then you both take the grid penalty at the same time. Both start from the back of the grid. Uh, plus, again, Max can qualify fourth in Saatchi. If he gets first place in qualifying, he'll start P4 on the grid. And then if you get a good start at lights out, you're going around corner one or turn one, maybe you can actually get up into first or into second from fourth with a great start passing two people ahead of you. I just don't know that I would put Max Verstappen at the back of the grid uh, for Saatchi. I would wait to switch my power unit. Now, the Italian Grand Prix had a couple more cool stories. Uh, Valtteri Bottas got third. Uh, and by the way, that's after starting at the back of the grid because of that, again, aforementioned power, uh, power unit change. You can only have three during a season. He had a fourth he had to add, so he had to go to the back of the grid. Uh, Valtteri Bottas ended up taking home 18 total points for the weekend, three for winning the sprint qualifying, and then 15 points for getting third uh, and a podium finish during the race. Very exciting. Remember, this is actually coming after getting the news that you're not coming back to Mercedes next year. You lost your seat to George Russell next year for Mercedes. Now, by the way, technically, Sergio Perez did finish third in this race, uh, but he got a five-second time penalty for an illegal pass of Valdry Botas, so he had to move back uh, to fifth with that time penalty, five seconds. Botas got on the podium, but the first and second drivers in this race belonged to McLaren. Oh, dude, it was so cool. Danny Ricardo won his first victory since Monza in 2018. And he also got fastest last, so he got 26 points on the day. Lando Norris got second. I love watching McLaren do well. I, they're like the, the most likable people on the grid. Danny Ricardo's fun, happy. Lando Norris is great. Like, they're, they never dominate, so, like, anytime they win, it's a feel-good story. It's kind of exciting. It was very, very cool seeing Danny Ricardo celebrate. Uh, I was super, super happy for him. I love seeing that. Uh, Charles Leclerc got fourth for Ferrari. Carlos Sainz got sixth. A sixth. Uh, and after Sunday, here are the driver standings in Formula 1. In first place, you have Max Verstappen with 226.5 points. In second place, you have Lewis Hamilton with 221.5 points. In third, you have Valtteri Botas with 141 points. And in fourth place, you have 
Lando Norris with 132 points. Now, in the team or constructor standings, you have number one, Mercedes is in first place with 362.5 points. Red Bull is in second with 344.5 points. Third is McLaren with 215 points. Ferrari has 201.5 points in fourth place. That battle for third between McLaren and Ferrari is very, very interesting. There are still eight races left this year. You have Russia coming up this weekend, Turkey, the United States, Mexico, Brazil. Uh, Round 20 is supposed to happen. There's supposed to be a race on November 21st. We just don't know what it's going to be yet, and maybe it gets canceled. I don't know. That's up in the air. Then you have Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi to end the year. Uh, eight races to go, maybe seven if they can't figure out that November 21st race, but should be really interesting as we come to the close of the year between Max Verstappen, the battle for first, and Lewis Hamilton, then the battle for third between Lando and Valtteri, and also the battle for third between McLaren and Ferrari in the Constructors' Championship. It's going to be really exciting and really fun to watch. Uh, One additional note, by the way, Max got two penalty points on his F1 license. Uh, for his crash in Italy. What that means, how that works, is you're not allowed to get 12 penalty points on your license in a 12-month span. So in in one year, you can't get more than 12 points or 12 points total. And if you do that, you're banned for the next race. It's basically a one-race suspension if you accumulate 12 total points in a one-year time frame. So far, it's never happened, but I found that interesting. I was like, what does that mean? He got a a penalty on his F1 license. And I, I looked it up. I'm like, oh, Interesting. So I think it's going to be an incredible year as we come to a close between this battle between Lewis and Max is going to be unbelievable. And I worry it's going to get even more chippy. It's going to get even more physical, even more bumping and even more stuff like that. Uh, Keep your eye on how this goes. I don't know. Uh, I hope it finishes on the track and not with crashing. But either way, it's going to be very entertaining and very, very interesting as the year comes to a close with eight more races left to go in the F1 season. Guys, I'm dealing with a canker sore. It's horrible. It's getting way better. It's still not good. It feels really hard. It's hard to talk, frankly. I'm doing the very best I can. Uh, I want to now shift to Ask Zach. It's my favorite part of the show. So in case you do not know how it works, you go to patreon.com forward slash Zach Schaumler. You give a dollar a month. You can give more if you want to. Please do. It literally helps pay my rent. But a dollar a month gives you access to submit questions on Patreon. Now, if you submit a question to the show, I do not guarantee to read it, but I, I only guarantee, my only guarantee with Ask Zach is I guarantee I look at every single question with my eyeballs. I pick the top couple. I'll read them on the show. Uh, it is time for Ask Zach now, my favorite part. Let's jump in. Question number one is from Patrick. He says, I want to challenge your take on play-by-play announcers on TV being needless for people who know football well. Obviously, we can all see for ourselves what is happening, but a good, exciting announcer can elevate a game and make it more fun. I'm talking about people like Gus Johnson, Chris Fowler, Jim Nance, Kevin Harlan, or Joe Tessitore. Their excitement for the game catches on to me when I hear them talk. Especially with boring games, they can still be plenty of fun to watch with a good commentator. They also function as the host of the show to fill some time while nothing is happening and can ask the color guy interesting questions. To be fair, a bad announcer can ruin even a good game, too. Hearing Joe Buck saying, pass is caught over the over and over again. <laughs> I, try, I tried my best. That's not a, it's a terrible Joe Buck impersonation. Over and over again puts me to sleep even when the game is fun. So, Patrick, I, I hear you, and I actually think you're right. I agree. 
because uh, I had to evaluate myself, and I'm like, well, look, I do love Gus Johnson. I do love Kevin Harlan. I think Jim Nance is fantastic. And I realized, like, I think my problem with broadcasting recently is I just genuinely hate the Monday night football broadcast. I don't find them entertaining. I find them very, very boring. Uh, it's weird that they can't find a way to get some of the top guys. It's ESPN. It's Monday night football. It's a legendary broadcast. And yet all of the best broadcasters around football, either with Fox college football or CBS, Tony Romo, Jim Nance, or ESPN college football has got a great broadcasting crew. Like everywhere else has great broadcasters. For some reason, they cannot get good big names doing Monday night football. Ever since John Gruden left, it's been awful. And I don't know. It's just disappointing. It makes me really sad. I, I wish we could get something better. ESPN is a massive deal. Monday Night Football is a primetime game every single week. And it, it pains me that part of the production every single week is just terrible. And terrible is the wrong word. They're fine broadcasters. I don't want to talk smack about them. I already have, but I, I feel bad about that now. But definitely, like, I wish they were more interesting and more exciting. And it's really sad to me that they're not. Okay, Evan writes in, fun one. He says, hey, Zach. Did you hear that the coach from Portland State has promised to buy, promised fans to buy them beer if they show up to the game versus Western Oregon this weekend? Here's a snippet from the article on OregonLive.com. He said, I've got to get people to see my kids, the Vikings coach said. I like my team. Barnum extended the offer on Tuesday unprompted. I've got a deal for you, Barnum announced. Anybody who heard me on your show, just say, I heard Barney on the BFT at the Barney Beer Garden and I'll buy your beer. I'm not buying your ticket, but I'll buy your beer. How many beers? Said Barney. All of them. I'll buy all your beers you buy if you go to the Portland State Western Oregon game. Uh, I think it's interesting. First of all, Evan, fun right in. Also, uh, my high school backup quarterback was Brody Barnum, Bruce Barnum's son. I've met Bruce Barnum multiple times. I interviewed their quarterback, Davis Alexander, a couple weeks ago. I interviewed their quarterback coach, uh, John Eagle, a couple weeks before that. They're just sitting on my hard drive. I haven't edited them yet, but I want to get that out. It's really the John Eagle interview, especially, was very, very interesting. His philosophy of the coaching, he won multiple state championships in high school. Then he decided to take a leap from high school to college, and that's motivating. I got to get that out because that's really interesting content. I haven't shared with anybody out loud that I did that yet. And my fear is no one's going to watch it because no one watches my freaking interviews. But uh, the John Eagle interview is like, dude, it's amazing. The way he talks about his philosophy with yelling at kids and how he doesn't do it and he's so thoughtful. I had to learn how to talk to him. It's just, oh my, what a great, fun interview. I want to get that out someday. And, and I, I hope to God people watch it because it's so good. Uh, anyway, fun one, if you're in Portland uh, and if you want a free beer, like maybe you don't even care about football. It sounds like Bruce Barnum will pay for a beer regardless. So go to the game. If you're in Portland, go watch Portland State versus Western Oregon on Saturday. Highly recommend it. Uh, their quarterback, Davis Alexander, has an unbelievable arm. Good friend of mine. Uh, you should go watch that game if you can. Final question of the day. Last thing for the entire show. Thomas says, hi, Zach. Who would you rather have right now, Tom Brady or Pat Mahomes? It's a tough decision for me because they are both so good and they both elevate their teams. Um, so for me, I would take Patrick Mahomes over Tom Brady. And I know that's crazy because Tom Brady is my favorite player of all time. But And, and Mahomes... Both, both of them do elevate their football team, first of all. Tom Brady elevates his football team, but he does it through leadership and getting people on the same page and making sure you have good players. He's kind of like a general manager and a coach rather than a great player who can elevate. Like Tom Brady's never going to run around to the bad offensive line and make plays happen that are good. 
Patrick Mahomes is one of the only quarterbacks in the entire NFL. Him uh, and Russell Wilson. Deshaun Watson's actually out there, too. I haven't talked about Deshaun Watson in a long time. One of the only groups of quarterbacks right there who can win with a bad offensive line. Patrick Mahomes can win with a bad offensive line. He's the best in the NFL at doing that. Tom Brady simply cannot. So for that reason, almost alone, I would pick Patrick Mahomes over Tom Brady. I love Tom Brady. I think that Mahomes can do more, can win with less. Uh, and Brady, I love him. He needs more help to win football games. There's a reason why Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay, who has a great defense, incredible receivers, a good offensive line. Like He didn't go to Detroit and try to win because Tom Brady knows he couldn't win a Super Bowl in Detroit. He needs a lot of help. And Mahomes has a good football team around him, absolutely, but he also could win with a little bit less help. And uh, I just think I would take Mahomes over Tom Brady in a heartbeat. All right, guys, that is all I have. Uh, I, it's been really fun. I love you. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. And uh, I got another episode coming, I think. We'll see. I- I'm working on something quietly. Uh, keep your eyes peeled. I love you. I appreciate you. Bam, bam, bam. We are done.